I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, BCG's think tank for strategy and management, and I'm delighted today to be joined for our Insights podcast by Gary Hamill, who is a teacher at London Business School, a prolific writer on management topics, the founder of a consulting company, and one of the most influential management thinkers of today. Today, we'll be discussing his forthcoming book, which I think is relevant to us all, uh, Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them. Welcome, Gary. Yes, thank you, Martin. Pleasure to be with you today. So I loved your book, uh, Gary, which is coming out next month from uh, Harvard Business Press. It seems to be a sort of a revolt against that thing that we love to hate, bureaucracy. We love to hate it so much that perhaps it's a little ill-defined. How will you define the public enemy number one here, bureaucracy? Well, I think you can define it as an ideology and uh, an architecture. The ideology of bureaucracy is controlism. It was invented, depending on where you start, but about 150 years ago with the goal of turning human beings into semi-programmable robots to make them as reliable as the machines they served in the industrial economy. So the underlying ideology is controlism, and that was the goal, to make sure that human beings were coloring inside the lines and doing exactly what they were told to do. The architecture of ideologies, of course, you know, the pyramid, the traditional command and control system where uh, big leaders decide on strategy, set direction, uh, point little leaders, where managers assign uh, tasks and assess performance. And uh, so in a way, bureaucracy is really a mashup of two ideas of command and control structures that go back as far as we can go back in history, but we certainly were, you know, the basis for all military uh, command systems. And then the uh, disciplines of industrial engineering that really started with Frederick Taylor and matured from there. Bureaucracy presumably originally served some purpose and probably served it well in that it's been an extraordinarily persistent and long-lived philosophy. What was the original value proposition? Well, I think it was designed uh, to solve uh, three problems, really. One I mentioned, which is control. I mean, obviously, in an organization of any size, you need things to be done in a particular way. If you think about uh, Intel or TSMC producing uh, semiconductors with tolerances measured in the nanometers, I mean, you need an extraordinary amount of control over many, many variables uh, to do that. I think coincidentally, it was also designed to uh, drive coordination because if you want activities to coordinate, you need standard interfaces that control allows coordination and things to be put together in complex ways. And then finally, it was designed to drive consistency, to have unity of command and make sure that all noses were pointed in the, in the same direction. So yes, it, it served a very important purpose. And arguably, uh, bureaucracy is the most important human invention ever. It was largely responsible for 100 and some years of increasing capital and labor productivity. And uh, my argument is simply like all technologies, it's now outlived its usefulness in some way, and, and there are alternatives that can serve those functions better without a lot of the uh, toxic side effects that came along with bureaucracy. So let's discuss the alternative you're proposing, humanocracy. In brief, what is it? Why do we need it now to uh, replace this, you say, obsolete technology of bureaucracy? Well, I would say the simplest explanation is where bureaucracy was uh, designed to maximize uh, conformance. The idea behind humanocracy is to maximize contribution. Now, you still need some conformance. And and a a lot of what I and my co-author argue in the book is that you still need the control, the consistency, the coordination. But maybe there are ways today of buying that duty-free, as it were, without those attendant costs. And and the reason it's important, I think, is that around the world, at least the leaders, the CEOs I talk to, increasingly they understand, Martin, that what really limits their organizations 
is not the operating model. It's not logistics, supply chain and all that. It's not really the business model, although, as you well know, in many cases, that needs to evolve. But more and more, they understand it's the management model, that an organization is too slow, too conservative, too many layers, too less, too little empowerment. And so they're struggling to figure out how do I uninstall this technology that we've relied on for more than a century and build something better. So I think there's a competitive reason for doing this that's, I think, increasingly apparent. But let me argue there's also a social reason. In recent years around the world, the establishment has, has taken a beating. And we've seen that, whether that was you know, the drain the swamp Trump voters or all those who lined up behind Bernie and were hoping for, uh, to give socialism a second chance. It's the yellow jacket protesters in France, Brexiteer voters in Britain. And more recently in the US and across the world, a lot of people who've been out there demonstrating against racial injustice. And when you look at what is behind all of this, what unites people is not any particular ideology, but a sense that you know, the system is not working very well for them. And that may be, you know, an impoverished factory worker who's been uh, uh, lost their job to deindustrialization. It might be an indebted college grad who's uh, marooned in, in, in a gig economy job or, or an inner city parent who's, you know, struggling to get their kid into a well-functioning school. But what all of these people like and what, what human beings want in general is dignity, opportunity, and equity. And if you, if you don't find that at work, you're not likely to find a lot of it in the rest of your life either. And so... Part of what we're trying to do with this book is to say that our organizations in many ways uh, have become or are a kind of caste system that is a product of the time when workers were mostly poorly educated. And you had division of the thinkers and the doers, the, uh, you know, the clever and the compliant. And that in many ways, and, and, and there's plenty of data that backs that up, that caste system is still very much alive in organizations and a, and a majority, a vast majority of employees do not find the work environment to be very engaging. So there's a social reason beyond the economic reason, the competitive reason, there's a social reason that this is really a part of creating uh, the kinds of organizations that, that we would feel good about working in and that would fully take advantage of all the talents and the energy that's there, much of which at the moment is being wasted. So that's the call to action for um, humanocracy. And how would you define the common denominator of these various attempts to create an alternative that you describe in your book? What are the key tenets? Uh, if the key tenets of, of bureaucracy are stratification and specialization and standardization and so on, what are the key tenets of humanocracy? Well, when, you know, we looked at a lot of uh, companies, as you know, Martin, that, that seem to have kind of broken that old mold and, and they span all geographies and, and all industries. And at the level of practices, you certainly see some similarities, which, which we could talk about. But where you see the most commonalities across these, uh, you know, what we might call the post-bureaucratic vanguard is in the principles. And so at the core, whether, whether it's a company like Nucor, whether it's Svenska's Handelsbanken, whether it's Morningstar, a tomato processor, whether it's Birdsog in the Netherlands, all of these companies started and were built around a core belief that it is not the individual that is the instrument, it's the organization. And I think one of the deep uh, kind of uh, philosophical underpinnings of bureaucracy was that human beings are resources, and we talk about them that way, or human capital, and that you know organizations hired human beings to produce products, services, and profits, perhaps, and in that rendering, the individual is the instrument. Obviously, when you treat people like instruments, you're unlikely to get much out of them or the best out of them. And so what unites these companies, I think, that, are, that have been building a different model is you start with the belief that kind of the individual is sovereign, that individuals join organizations as a vehicle to make a difference in the world and to earn a living, 
And that's it, it works that way around. Uh, it's it's kind of um, you know the categorical imperative that sees uh, human beings as an end and rather than than means. So all of these organizations start with that. It's not uh, just a statement. It's not just something that is you know a kind of a thought. It's a deeply felt kind of almost moral imperative uh, for for all of these companies and the leaders that built them. So that's where you start with. What that leads you to, if you say, well, I want to build an organization that gives people the, the greatest chance to flourish, then you start to think about, well, what does that take? And it takes some obvious things. You have to have people who feel like they are part of a community, that they're working with people who care about them, that they're compatriots, and there's not a lot of status differentiators and not a lot of petty rules, and we're in it together. And for all of human history, we've done best when we feel like we're in that sort of community, an emotionally resonant community. It means giving people the freedom and space to experiment. As human beings, we were born to create. We love making things better. We do that all the time in all kinds of different ways. Our organizations often get in, get in the way of it. It also means creating meritocracy, where if you have influence and authority, it's because you are creating more value, more pure attested value, not simply because you've won the bureaucratic bun fight and you've you know managed to climb up uh, the slippery pole of, of the organizational pyramid. Uh, it means creating organizations that, that are more like markets, you know, from time immemorial, markets are where people come together to buy and sell. We love the choice that affords, the competitive discipline that it brings. Uh, it means building an organization like human beings that are very good at managing paradox, that are not kind of either or, but are very good at managing the tension between scale and adaptability or between innovation and, and efficiency. So if you unpack these organizations, what you find is that all of the particular practices you observe they trace back to that core original idea about the inherent worth and value of human beings. And then what we know about how you unleash those inherent capabilities. And that means markets, communities, experimentation, meritocracy, and, 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 and the capacity to embrace and, and manage paradox. And so building an organization that is, that is kind of fit for human beings and gets the best out of them means starting with those principles and then asking, how do we operationalize those in, uh, in everything we do and how we allocate, plan, hire, compensate, organize work, and just relentlessly over time, operationalizing those or instantiating those principles in the systems and processes by which we run our organizations. If I understand you correctly, then you're saying we do need an alternative to bureaucracy. We have a number of experiments out there. You know, we've demonstrated that there can be an alternative. There's a set of common principles, these principles of ownership, markets, meritocracy, community, openness, experimentation, and paradox, which uh, the alternatives tend to adopt. But there isn't yet a blueprint or instruction manual for constructing the alternative. Is that roughly the state of play? Yeah, I think that's true, Martin. And I'm not sure. Let, let me make a distinction between having a single organizational blueprint, right? A single management model. And everyone's going to say, yeah, that's, that's what we need versus having a broader set of principles that everyone says, yeah, we need to figure out a way of, of making those come alive in our organizations. For example, if you look at democracy around the world, which in all kinds of ways is under threat, but I, I don't think we've discovered something better yet, you find that the principles are pretty familiar around the world, whether you're in the Netherlands or Britain or Japan or the United States or Germany. But if you look closer, the institutions vary widely uh, and, and the practices vary widely from one democracy to another. And we think the same is kind of true with what humanocracy is, is going to look like as we hope it becomes kind of more the norm and, and, and less the exception. No company would be, I think, content if its business model was an exact 
duplicate of some other company's business model. I think most leaders have gotten the message, you know, after many years that you need a business model that is distinct, that is competitively unique in some ways, and those are the companies that tend to win. But interestingly, a lot of organizations have been quite content to run a management model that is virtually indistinguishable from all of their competitors. So my sense is that organizations make this journey, the way they flesh out, the way they operationalize those principles may be quite different. The way openness looks in one company may be different than it looks in another company. And I think that's a good thing. You know, this is not an SAP implementation where you simply come in and you kind of put the standardized thing into an organization. So I think that kind of variety in, in interpretation and application is probably going to be very, very important. And yet you can have that, but still have, I think, a, a rather consistent set of underlying principles, just like you would have in, in a democracy. I buy that. We need a variety of implementations and one could dis- distinguish a company on its organizational model as much as its competitive model. At the same time, in a sense, you're proposing that companies walk away from something well-known and relatively predictable for all of its demerits and to embrace something which is as yet ill-defined. How would you make that case for a leap into the unknown? Well, I would say first, probably don't leap, like, you know, put a toe in the water. You know, it's exactly the challenge. If if you think about bureaucracy, it's familiar. There's a whole um, kind of confederacy that supports it, business schools and uh, regulatory agencies and so on that kind of all, all keep it in place. And it's pretty well defended by people who've done very well at, at playing that kind of bureaucratic game, have learned how do you win and score in a bureaucratic system. So changing it for sure isn't easy. And, and one thing we might want to reflect on is why, despite all those demerits, hasn't, hasn't this happened already? But certainly, I think it, you, you can't change a very complex system from the top down. I, I don't know that there's any way of orchestrating a highly detailed change management process where you start at the top, where you architect exactly how you want every role to change and the relationships to change and every uh, system and process. I think that's impossible to do when you have something this complex. And as you say, when the target is still hazy, I think what you have to do instead is start with those principles. And, and certainly the way we've approached this is inviting the whole organization to be part of building a repertoire or a portfolio of experiments where every every leader, every team across the organization can say, well, if we took openness seriously, what would we do? Maybe we would open our salary information. Maybe we'd invite customers in and make our product development process much more open. Maybe we'd move to much more open review of leaders and their performance. So it's about creating a portfolio of experiments. If if you look, for example, how Amazon evolves its business model over time, Jeff Bezos would say, you know, my goal is to create the world's biggest laboratory, and we're just going to try more things. Some of them work and scale up, some of them don't. And I think that's our spirit with with how you begin this journey towards humanocracy. As you start with the principles, you invite people across the organization to start running low-cost, small experiments. How might this work here? You see what works, you propagate them and, and spool them up. The ones that don't, you don't. But I think you avoid the temptation to try to do something uh, authoritarian and top-down. And so part of the argument in the book is to do this, we actually also have to change the way we think about change. I know BCG, along with other consulting companies, you know, their research uh, suggests that only about one in four change programs meets its objectives. I think we kind of understand the reasons for that. But in a very complex, fast-changing world, uh, first, by the time you, you get enough energy at the top to say, yes, we need to change something big and fundamental, you're probably too late. Often those change programs are not very nuanced, and you find they don't actually work very well down on the ground. 
and they're just immensely disempowering. And so, you know, we start with kind of the principles of design thinking, start with the users, start with the ordinary employees who are out there every day trying to create value, do the right thing for the customers, invite them into the conversation, help them understand these principles and invite them to start experimenting in low cost ways where they are. But for sure, you don't want to blow up what's already there until you've started to test and prove out alternative models. I think it's easy to imagine some of these alternatives occurring quite naturally in a, a startup, uh, perhaps a technology startup, where you don't have the burden of the existing track record of the existing philosophy. Have you seen examples in your research of large traditionally structured companies in traditional, you know, physical, non-digital industries which have made the transformation? We see this in a number of organizations of substantial scale, but most of the vanguard were kind of born that way. So you had a pioneering CEO who from the beginning said, let me build an organization that maximizes human freedom. And so it's, it's developed from there. There are many fewer cases of an existing, maybe you call brownfield organization that's made this transformation. One that we talk about and give some space to in the book is Hire, the uh, world's largest domestic appliance maker based in Qingdao, China. They've been on now about a 10 or 11 year journey to flatten the hierarchy. They reduced their organization down to three levels with 80,000 people. Typically, they have probably eight levels. So they've dramatically flattened the organization. They've divided the company into more than 4,000 micro enterprises, which are highly autonomous. They they have autonomy to set strategy, autonomy to hire and fire, and autonomy to distribute rewards. All of those small micro enterprises connect with each other through internal contracting. So it's very much a market-based system, and that includes HR, finance, IT. So if you don't find the internal HR function very helpful, you're welcome to buy those uh, skills outside. So there are no internal monopolies. And if, if a microenterprise, one of their small businesses, if, if it cannot sustain itself, it goes out of business. That happens all the time. And so I think Hire may be right now the most, not the only one, but perhaps the most worked out example of an organization that's made this transition that has gone from the bureaucratic model to how they call it internally, Rendon High which just basically means users and customers as one. But that's been an 11-year journey and has paid enormous dividends. Their goal from the start or the belief from the start was that you can have a large organization. It can be as entrepreneurial as a small one. And so they are, they are starting dozens of new businesses. Some of those businesses have now been spun out. I think some of them are even uh, what we would call unicorns. They're highly valued uh, businesses. Some of them are kept internally. You've seen that transition there. You saw it happen a few decades ago in Nucor, the most consistently profitable and most innovative U.S. steel uh, maker, where they went from a very traditional organization. So we have enough, there are enough examples to know it's possible and to extract a few principles about how you get started. So shifting to the present, one of the arguments you make for humanocracy is that it unleashes greater innovativeness and resilience. And of course, we need those right now to weather the COVID crisis on many dimensions. Someone might expect some of these humanocratic organizations that you uh, study to be showing greater resilience during the current COVID crisis. Have you in fact seen that? Well, I don't have any firsthand evidence, but when we've talked to some of these organizations and their CEOs over the last few weeks, that is definitely the point they've made. Their teams have moved quicker, that you know they haven't waited for somebody at the top to tell them how to respond, that uh, because most of these organizations have very dense horizontal networks, that the better practices in terms of keeping employees and customers safe have spread incredibly rapidly across the organization. I think 
It's generally true that in a crisis, at least in a substantial crisis, power moves out to the periphery. And we saw that happen. I think the, uh, the leader of, of, of a large healthcare organization in Italy said the virus moves faster than bureaucracy, and to which I would add, yes, well, everything else does as well. But, but they understood that when faced with these unprecedented problems, you actually need people to move quickly. They need to be smart. They need to have all the data. They need to share that data. You don't want people doing things in isolation, not learning. But that if you're waiting for somebody at the top to kind of coalesce all of this and find the one best way and tell you, you're, you're just going to be paralyzed. And so it's been interesting. Also in organizations, Martin, that perhaps don't fit this model so well. I've been talking over the last couple of weeks to some very large companies that your listeners would know. And, and one of the common refrains is that they have been immensely impressed and surprised by the initiative and ingenuity of their people. That it's kind of like, wow, we didn't realize they were this committed, that they could think this clearly, they could move this fast. And somehow we have to keep this going and we can't let ourselves slip back into the old model where the learned helplessness and the, the bureaucratic rules and the fiefdoms make it difficult for us to adapt. I could certainly empathize with that uh, observation, Gary. I think about a third of the companies I've been speaking to are essentially saying, you know, thank you to COVID for the gift of the opportunity to improve our resilience and agility. We also know, though, from practice is that once the crisis starts to dissipate, uh, bureaucracy reasserts itself. And, uh, you know, the bureaucrats say, wait a minute, we're, we're supposed to be in charge here. And, you know, OK, we understand in this situation that maybe you guys had to exercise of initiative and do it in a different way. But I think it, it has, it is an unprecedented kind of shock to the system. And my hope is that a lot of these organizations won't return to that bureaucratic model, at least quite as instinctively, and will be thoughtful about what have we learned through all of this. Well, Gary, thanks so much for spending time with us today to discuss your ideas and why we need to break with bureaucracy and how we can do so. Uh, your book, Humanocracy, will be published next month, August 2020, by Harvard Business Press and uh, would strongly recommend it as a, a very thought-provoking read for any business leader. So thank you very much, Gary. Thank you, Martin. Very much a pleasure. <laughs>